you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. .com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. We have the most excellent author on today. I think you're going to be excited to hear from her. Uh, to see the video version of this, go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification so you get all the notifications of everything you do. Refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Uh, share that video out across the social media and your friends' network. Say so you got to read and hear about this stuff because it'll make you smarter. Uh, refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go to the CVPN. You can subscribe to all nine podcasts there. You can uh, check out our new uh, book club we're trying to get rolling here. It's at patreon.com forward slash Chris Voss. We talk about the background of the show, authors, books, all that sort of good stuff. Kind of go more in depth into some of the things that we learned from all the reading we did and the interviews we do with authors. So be sure to check that out as well. Today, we have a most excellent guest. She is the author of the new book. You want to check this baby out. It's Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, And this kind of goes along with the serendipity that we've been talking about with a lot of different things going on with Black Lives Matter, some of the questions we're asking ourselves in the environment. The author's name is Kristen Kubas Dumay. She's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on gender, religion, and American politics. She has written for the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, and Christian Century. And her work has been featured on NPR's Morning Edition the BBC, the CBC, and several other national and international outlets. She blogs at Pathios Anxious Bench. Welcome to the show, Kristen. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Good, 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 good. And uh, so uh, give us some dot-coms, uh, plugs, where people can check out your book and also learn more about you online. Sure. I have a website, kristendumay.com. Dumay is D-U-M-E-Z. And I have a Facebook author page, Kristen Kobus Dumay. And I'm on Twitter at KK Dumay, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. There you go. There you go. And I was excited to get this book on because I've been going through an exploration. Hopefully my audience has been following along as we've been going through this uh, with Baldwin and and uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, John Wayne was something that Baldwin spoke about uh, and, you know, what he represented. And, and we've been having lots of different discussions like the city on the, the shining city on the hill author and uh, white, white uh, privilege and white exceptionalism. And of course, uh, uh, the whole perception of 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 uh, America's destiny or the perception of America's destiny, I should say. So, um, what was the reason that you uh, wrote this book and and uh, give us an overview of it, if you would, please? Sure. I actually started work on this book. I didn't know quite what it was going to turn out to be. And I didn't know that Donald Trump would be the the culmination of this research uh, 15 years ago. So, uh, and what brought this all to my attention, I teach at a Christian university and some of my students uh, said, you know, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you're really going to want to see. I'd been lecturing in U.S. history on Teddy Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt's kind of militant masculinity and how it was connected to foreign policy and religion and they, they handed me the book uh, Wild at Heart uh, from John Eldridge, and it was a book that was selling millions of copies in the early 2000s. And John Eldridge loved Teddy Roosevelt. He loved this very um, militant masculinity, and he was really promoting this as ideal Christian manhood. Now, this was right around the time when we started seeing survey after survey showing how white evangelicals were pro-Iraq war, pro-preemptive war, condoning the use of torture. And so I started to look at how uh, evangelical ideals of gender are tightly linked to uh, militancy, uh, militarism, and foreign policy. Uh, that's where it started. And again, it ended up with Donald Trump. 
Wow, that's just extraordinary. Uh, some of the path we've been going on is is like I say the the one the shining on the sil the shining city on the hill, which comes from uh, the Puritan background, the the founding of this this country. And a lot of discussion we have is you know a lot of the ugliness and violence that we have done in the name of well, this is America, and uh, you know the the uh, manifest destiny perception of, well, we, we have a right to enslave people that, that we think are less than us, even though the human beings, uh, we have a right to uh, kill, murder, rape uh, Indians and put them on reservations um, because, you know, they're, they're, they're dirty heathens was the, was the saying back then. Um, and, uh, but they're human beings. And we did, we did, we've done over across America's history. We've done some of the most extraordinary, hateful, evil, ugly, murderous, uh, things in the name of, of God loves America and America is God's country. And, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, um, uh, and it was interesting to me you picked G, uh, John Wayne through this uh, because I grew up with John Wayne as my masculinity thing. And I didn't grow up Christian. I, I grew up in a Mormon cult, but yeah. I, I really didn't espouse to the religion. I, I kind of knew it was a fraud from the beginning. But to me, it was still that era of, I don't know, I think I think everyone in that era grew up. But you talk about how um, white Christians pretty much took that and, and ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started looking at you know, other books too, not just Eldridge's, but other books on Christian manhood that were being published, uh, I, I was really surprised because evangelicals like to talk about being Bible-believing Christians, right? It's all about the Bible. But when I was looking at their books on Christian manhood, uh, you know, there was a Bible verse sprinkled here or there, but they really looked to Hollywood heroes for their models of kind of this mythical masculinity. And their favorites were... Uh, uh, William Wallace from Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Love William Wallace. And, and then John Wayne just kept popping up. So I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. In many ways, this book is not about John Wayne, but it is about how white evangelicals have embraced a, a largely kind of secular ideal of masculinity and, and then, you know, called it Christian. And in doing so, they've actually changed Christianity itself. So now, you know, their Jesus of the Gospels is a warrior Christ. And, you know, with, with a flaming sword and going to do battle and slay all of his enemies instead of the Jesus of the Gospels, uh, you know, which is, you know, love your enemies and, and give up yourself and give up your power. And so it really, you know, that's the, the corrupted of faith part of, of the subtitle, really. Uh, but yeah, they were drawing on these secular heroes like John Wayne, I think in large part because uh, these models of militant masculinity had been kind of untainted by traditional Christian virtue. So they were the true kind of rugged, manly man who was strong enough to protect them and to protect their interests. Did we, did we go from, I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, my grandfather was, both my grandfathers were, were tough men, tough as steel. They were just, but I didn't, I, I don't know. I don't know if I was just too young to tune into it, but they didn't come across as toxic masculinity. Um, and now I'm thinking about it actually a little bit more, and I'll probably think about more after the show. But they, but they, they kind of had, they were kind of the rock in their relationships. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't ever witness my grandparents fighting and stuff. I think they kept some of that from us. I think they both reached a point in their marriages where they were, you know, they were on the settled side in their 60s and 70s, where they're just like, hey, we're just riding this out until the end. <laughs> uh, you, know, you just, you reach a certain point in your life where I'm just not going to fight about stuff anymore because I'm just, you know. Um, and we're just all going to get along and, and, uh, make this work. Um, and, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think, I think in the seventies, I saw my father, uh, this, this, this kind of new age sort of thing. And, and I went through the eighties where, you know, a lot of things were changing with, uh, with, uh, you know, what men sort of were expected to do, you know, women started working. Uh, when I was a kid, I was going to my mom, I with my mom out to ERA events, you know, when they were trying to get ERA going and rolling. And, uh, and then there was a real dichotomy of masculinity of then, and you saw more divorces became very normal. I remember how shocking it was to see divorce, uh, and, and the issues there in the movie, uh, ET, you know, where the mom's divorced yes. and they're going through yes. those, you know, it, 
I, I grew up in the area where there was that one divorced woman on the block yeah. and all the women would whisper about her. That's, that's, that. yeah. there's a guy over there today. Um, the, um, and then, you know, and then over time I saw where now, now it's the, there's that one married chick on the block now who has never been divorced. What's going on over there? <laughs> um, you know, it's totally flipped the model, but, um, you know, come to think of it, I, I, I did, did. So I guess my question is, did you, did you see a rise of this during the John Wayne era that wasn't prior, but no, you saw a lot of that in Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. So, you know, as a historian, I, I, um, I sketch a longer history here and I do glance hmm. back to the 19th century, even before Teddy Roosevelt, you see this kind of uh, militant patriarchal uh, Christian manhood in the American South and right linked to kind of uh, control over women, children, and enslaved peoples. Mm. Uh, and then you have in uh, the rise in the early 20th century of this kind of muscular Christianity. Um, and so you can find precursors and influences that will kind of shape later, the later history, but there are also differences. And so in the early 20th century, a lot of progressive Christians actually embraced muscular Christianity. And many conservative Protestants, for example, in World War I, were not not kind of rah-rah war. Uh, they, they were much more ambivalent. And so, so the, the kind of uh, set of issues that we identify today with, you know, conservative evangelicals and militarism and patriarchy and all of these things really did kind of come together in the early Cold War era um, with, with earlier precedents, but there was a lot of change over time. And so it's really in the 19, late 40s, 50s, 60s that this comes uh, kind of in, into shape. Billy Graham is part of this story and the Cold War is the backdrop. So, right, you have this danger to Christian America and we need strong men to stand up and fight. And then you have feminism coming along and the civil rights movement. Each of these things is disrupting white patriarchal power. And so by the 1970s, the time when evangelicals really start to coalesce as this partisan political force, this militant white masculinity and patriarchal authority move to the center of their identity. And that starts to define kind of who they are over and against many other Americans, even as it unites them with, with some secular concerns conservatives who also think that this kind of John Wayne masculinity is an antidote to everything that had gone wrong in America in the 1960s. Um, one thing that we talked about with uh, Eddie Glaude Jr.'s book is, is the intersection of where, like you say, the civil rights and then how things flip back under Nixon, where Nixon became very, you know, we, we saw what Trump is copying right now, you know, the persecution of, of people of color and race. And, and I believe he's anti-Jewish when it comes down to it in his heart. Um, I think he just plays to that to, to uh, you know, get votes and whatever money. Um, uh, so was it, was it during the Nixon era? Did this really come to fruition? I think we saw it again in the Reagan era, and Reagan really brought it back because Reagan pushed the city on the hill concept, the manifest destiny, you know. Um, uh, and of course, uh, Jesus, I just I just got done reading the Playboy interview from John Wayne that yeah. that is so heinous. I had never read before. I, I've just had to give him up as a as a masculine identity and and uh, a hero. Yeah, yeah. So it, um, you know, it's it's definitely uh, kind of comes to fruition in the Nixon era, uh, even before that with Barry Goldwater, right? You see oh, yeah. some of these pieces falling into place, especially um, among Southern California evangelicals, mm -hmm. right? And and that really becomes the epicenter of the new Christian right. Uh, and many of those folks had recently settled in Southern California, and they had come from uh, the American South, right? And so here again, you can see some of these oh. these connections. And, um, but, but it's true that this vision of kind of militant Christian manhood was always a white ideal, even if they didn't explicitly state it. But I, I noticed early on when I was reading all these books on Christian manhood, all of their militant heroes were white. And many of their militant heroes happened to be white guys who uh, had subdued non-white populations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the heroic cowboy out on the plains, you know, uh, or John Wayne, uh, either fighting the Japanese or fighting uh, Vietnamese, right? This was a very white model of militant masculinity, and it did not extend to, for example, black manhood. Um, this was very much a, a 
white tradition and evangelicalism, white evangelicalism is, is, you know, a very white racial identity. And I think it's important to note that. Yeah. And what was interesting, I saw in one of your interviews, you talked about how John Wayne becomes the epitome, the embodiment of the end justifies the means, whether it's, you know, basically killing, destroying, enslaving, uh, you know, dominating, uh, other races like the one thing i didn't tune into and and i like i say i i think i was just a child of that age like that was what was on tv we grew up with john wayne i mean if you would have put someone else in front of me and i didn't and like you said in some of your other interviews i didn't really tune into heston heston was kind of cool but uh i mean john wayne was just there but i didn't tune into the whole part about you know dominating people and shooting indians and you know the the whole toxicity of it and even as opinions personally um yeah i watched kirk douglas just kind of eviscerate him on on the dick cavett show a little bit um last night and 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 so i didn't tune into that but now i see the subconscious interlay of it in in how it it plays in that theme of well we we've got a you know the perception of the well they're heathens and we're white and and god this is a god's country you know Uh, every time i hear donald trump say you know our heritage and our nation and you know anytime he uses the word our it's like i know exactly who's talking about he's talking about white people so Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important to realize, too, that John Wayne is such a great kind of model for this militant Christian manhood because he didn't always present as ruthless, right? He presented as just this model of, of uh, you know, kind of controlled militancy mm-hmm. that often, you know, there was a charm there, there was a wit. Um, but when the going got rough, right, he wasn't afraid to use violence when necessary. And I think that's this ideal that, you know, you, you portray strength and you have respect and you have authority precisely because you have the potential to use violence as needed. And again, this was against the Cold War backdrop. And uh, so, you know, they were uh, preaching that, you know, the very fate of the nation was at stake and the very fate of Christianity of God was at stake. And so if, if that's what's at stake, I mean, you have to use all means necessary. And, and Vietnam was such a critical backdrop here. And Vietnam really really did focus attention uh, for conservative Americans and conservative evangelicals on what's wrong with American masculinity. Why can't our boys defeat this ragtag enemy over in the jungles of Vietnam? What happened to us? What happened to our greatness, right? And that's where feminism and civil rights and so come into into this equation. And they want to kind of, um, well, make America great again and do it by making American men strong again. So does the does the Vietnam War and how a lot of people wanted to not go to that war and the whole Nixon thing? I mean, this ties into so much of what I've learned already with with how you know we we really went off the deep end to 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 Nixon. You know, there was this basically this blowback or kickback, you know, from from civil rights era, and then like you say, out of that came and the and the one of the real problems with the Vietnam War was like you say the identity of the U.S. itself, and we'd never lost the war, we'd never surrendered, we'd never gone away without winning, and and that's why that war unfortunately went on, and so many people died in it because we just kept throwing bodies at it, trying to you know under this assumption that we could that like America doesn't walk away. And, and, you know, eventually we just kind of, you know, Afghanistan with Russia had the same sort of problem. Um, And so this is really interesting. And then it plays into uh, Reagan brings it back. Uh, That's really interesting. What you said to me too, about how uh, during the sixties, that makes sense why that became such a hub there in in Southern California. We just had uh, Jean Guerrero on with her book, uh, hate monger. And she talks about how uh, Stephen Miller was shaped with his racial uh, bias and how, how, Republican uh, California was at the time an anti-immigrant. So when they moved there, they were probably like, Hey, there's all these immigrants from, from, from uh, Mexico. And that's probably where the, the evangelical persecution of immigrants came into play. Maybe. 
Yeah. So the historian that I, I want to give a shout out to in this, this um, kind of background is Darren Dochuk. And he has this phenomenal book that's from Bible Belt to Sun Belt. And he traces this, this story where you have this kind of Southern militancy, Southern patriarchy that gets transported, transplanted into Southern California. And it's very individualistic. And that's why this cowboy um, mythology just resonates so strongly. And this is all unfolding right in the shadow of Hollywood. And so mm-hmm. Films and this myth making, and uh, it, you know, it, it's all part of the mix. And this really is this is this is the crucible for the religious right. And um, and John Wayne is right there, right? He's speaking at the events. He's speaking at Pepperdine University, uh, yeah. you know, this evangelical institution. He and Ronald Reagan are you know good friends. They're appearing together, and and that's really this this key moment Jeez. in 20th century history. And it, it does all come together. Wow. That's just, everything is just making sense. Like, the more I read, the more I see this map. I'm going to check out that book. Uh, you know, I mean, Orange County is John Wayne Airport. They're, they're exactly. thinking about renaming it. There's a giant yes, statue of him in the thing. I mean, even I've had to reconcile through, you know, a lot of what I've been learning and stuff. I've had to sit down and go, uh, okay, we got to give up the John Wayne, which I'm cool with. You know, I'm, I'm kind of getting used to giving up stuff at this point and going, wow, I didn't realize there, there was this other part that was, uh, that was bad. But, you know, I, I did see, like I said, I, I grew up in the 70s. My mom was supportive of the ERA, and we used to go with her as kids uh, to the events. And, and it was really, we were trying to understand why this was such a big deal because we were just kids and, you know, there was a lot of angry men about it and, you know, well, if women start working and all the stuff, you know, this is still back in the era where there was usually just one income mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, we didn't understand as children, but you know, we're, Hey, your mom, you know, says it's important. We're doing it. Um, but yeah, this is really interesting. Now, how much does that play into the gun sort of thing? Because, yeah. I grew up in John Wayne, even now, even now I'm a gamer. I like shooting stuff and killing stuff. I I don't know if that comes from my John Wayne background or my just toxic masculinity. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why I like that stuff. I don't know. I I do have some, uh, probably some interesting psychosis over the years from growing up in a cult. So maybe I'm just taking my anger. Uh, I'm a big Metallica fan, so I like anger, but, uh, you know, I try to be a nice guy the rest of the time. Guns are a huge part of this, right? They they are an essential part to this proper uh, militant Christian masculinity, and this goes way back, too. So already in, uh, there's there's a book written by a fundamentalist pastor in 1972, How to Rear Children. And this is right around the the time that Dobson is also making um, some of these points. But uh, this, this one book on how to rear children had a chapter on how to raise boys. And I mean, he recommended giving uh, toy guns to very young boys and then, you know, and then uh, kind of building them up and giving them real firearms. And of course, your boys have to be trained to uh, to fire real firearms and they need to only play with other boys and with boys toys because otherwise they might become quote unquote a homosexual. And because we needed strong enough boys to become strong enough men to defend America on the battlefields of Vietnam, right? It's it's all there. And then they, they believe that because of what was happening in the rest of America with the feminist movement, with the, the counterculture, the hippies, uh, that it was really up to them as conservative Christians, as the faithful remnant, to promote and preserve true, rugged American manhood. It, they really took that upon themselves. And that's where you have somebody like Dobson, too, by the end of the 70s, talking about, you know, testosterone is key to um, uh, masculinity. And you've got to, again, let your boys, uh, you know, play with guns and and grow up to be rough, or be rough and tumble so they can grow up to be strong men to defend the nation because it's never been more important. Oh, did Roe versus Wade play into this? I mean, certainly women got uh, a lot more power with Roe versus Wade and then uh, birth control. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so not initially, not as much as you mm-hmm. might think. Um, early in, in the late 60s and early 70s, even conservative Protestants actually had a, a kind of mixed views on abortion. And uh, that was seen by many conservative Protestants as a Catholic 
thing. And many mm-hmm. conservative Protestants did not like Catholics <laughs> at the time. Um, <laughs> a lot has changed, right? There's their kind of new friendships have forged across precisely these issues. Uh, but I mean, in the late 60s, there was a, a, a whole issue of Christianity Today that considered the, the question of abortion. And there was a lot of, you know, it's, it's not a good thing, but it could be necessary. And it's really hard to say. And the Bible doesn't really speak out very clearly. By the end of the 70s, abortion had become highly politicized. And that's when you see this, this unity between conservative evangelicals uh, and conservative Catholics, so that by the 80s and certainly by the 90s, you don't have this diversity of, of view on abortion, at least not publicly stated, within evangelical communities anymore. Yeah, it's interesting what you researched about how people were, you know, uh, putting in their guns. And I've, I've written down some of the books that you've you've referenced here that I'm going to have to go research. I know that uh, my my grandfather or my uh, one of my friends, his grandfather, great grandfather back in the day, the way they made sure their kids didn't grow up gay or homosexual or however you want to put it, uh, was they would take them down to the whorehouse at 11 or 12 years old. And they would make sure they would inlay a, a, a first sexual experience with a woman. Um, and I don't know how often that happened, but that was like back then their way. Um, it's interesting, the gun part, because like I say, I grew up with John Wayne. I grew up with uh, uh, who's the Dirty Harry guy, Clint Eastwood. You know, Clint Eastwood was, you know, a big thing with his thing. But everything was about guns. Was guns, 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 guns. And now that I'm looking at it, maybe I should go more into a psychology session. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love modern warfare, but you know, I mean, I, I try and, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the outlet, but maybe there's a reason why that's such a thing to me, but you know, um, so this is really interesting. So you get in the Ronald Reagan years and John Wayne and, and I didn't know they were such good buddies, but, uh, See, reading his Playboy uh, thing where he just says the most heinous things about the Indians and enslaving other people and, you know, basically from this context of manifest destiny and it's God's will. Does a lot of that play into like what the NRA is today and why evangelicals, you know, they hold tightly to that second second, uh, amendment? Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, guns are are seen as, you know, uh, formative, really, in the development of proper Christian masculinity, proper masculinity, right? The two are kind of the same. And uh, again, historically, in the Cold War era, Vietnam era, uh, the identity of Christian manhood really focused on the idea of being a protector, the protector of women and children, the protector of the church, the protector of the American nation. And so to be that protector, again, use violence when necessary, and the ends will justify the the means in such a noble cause, right? The pursuit of righteousness here. And so, yes, guns were central to that identity. And, um, but also it was was part of a backlash against feminism, against, uh, you know, quote unquote, political correctness, which they labeled, you know, the emasculation of the American man. And really that takes on a life of its own by the um, 1980s, certainly by the 1990s, that this becomes, you know, not just an issue, but at the heart of their identity, that real men embrace this kind of militant masculinity, real men are going to embrace guns. And that's just central to identity. And all of our critics are, you know, on the other side of, of righteousness. So, you know, the feminists, the liberals, the secular humanists and, um, you know, those who are politically correct. And obviously this is very familiar to our present moment and kind of how the lines have been drawn, but there's a deep history here. And I imagine the gay movement, the rise of the gay movement in the seventies as well, uh, of LGBTQ, uh, culture. And I, I forget the name of the gentleman who was killed, uh, uh, in San Francisco, uh, but there was the whole rise of that, and yeah. that was probably Harvey throwing Mel- another wrench in the Harvey. Le- yeah, it was another yeah. wrench that was uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, you know, uh, the challenge of of perceived masculinity. Yeah, yeah, and you know that was seen as a threat um, to gender difference and you know uh, sexuality. That was really critical with regard to sexuality, um, gender performance. So this idea of you know God made men to be men and women to be you know very feminine. So the feminine side mm-hmm. of thing is you know to be weak, to be submissive, to be sexually alluring. Um, just you know this kind of hyper 
femininity uh, and to be utterly dependent on the strong, rugged masculinity. And that was preached over and over again by evangelicals to be God's will. Like that is inseparable from God's will for humanity. So if you cross that, you know, if you're a, a woman who's not properly submissive, not properly feminine, you know, you're not properly a woman, and you are going against God's order. Same thing on the side of masculinity. And so, yeah, both abortion and uh, homosexuality in the 1970s were these issues that became such hot button issues, in part because they seemed to challenge this all important gender difference, uh, right? Because abortion was undermining a woman's role as mother and her place in the home uh, mm-hmm. because it freed her from that. And um, homosexuality, right, absolutely undermined this idea of stark, stark gender difference. Interesting. Now, how does this all play into, um, you know, for, for me, uh, I'm an atheist. And so, but I've studied religion, why people believe things on their lives. And one thing I've always looked at is, is the women's, how women are treat have been treated by religion and, and how that's been fomented by the Bible. Because, uh, you, you look at, you know, the, the earliest story is the blaming of the woman for the Adam and Eve adventure, right? Yeah. You know, the woman, although it's the woman's fault, we got thrown out, you know, everything starts from there. And, if you read enough in in religion uh, about how a woman has been always kind of treated, in my mind or my opinion, as a second class citizen, as 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 in in the way she's presented, um, you know, I even one of my friends is Muslim, and uh, and she she's when she's on her period, she's not allowed to go to church. There's like a special area they can go attend church, but they're cut off. Because and she'll say it to me. She goes, "We're deemed as filthy according to the Quran," and I'm like, "That's like a human. Yeah. This is a human body thing. This isn't yeah. like you know, like uh, whatever." So, um, uh, but but there's you see different different uh, discussions about that from church leaders. You know, women. You know, there, there's this whole sort of. Uh, uh, male toxicity, male dominance, uh, this whole thing of, of keeping not only, like you mentioned, women down, but enslaving other peoples and everything else. There's this whole thing of white male, white male thing going on. And I understand it because I'm part of the club. And so I see it. But how much of that intersects with the Bible and, and, and all of that women blaming that goes on with, with religion? Yeah. So, I mean, what's really important to realize is that even though this is about white masculine power, that white evangelical women are critical to propping this up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to be confused that this is just a kind of men asserting their power, but many women are, are actively participating in this equation as well. Uh, and so I look in the book at some of the women in the 1960s and 1970s who became very prominent proponents of this this. Uh, kind of patriarchal authority. Women like Maribel Morgan and Elizabeth Elliot. And then on the Catholic side, you have Phyllis Schlafly, of course. And uh, what was really interesting to me is when I started to read these women's books, uh, they acknowledged that um, most women, most housewives in the 60s were, were miserable. Like they agreed with Betty Friedan. Uh, but they decided that there was a, a, a better solution. Women's liberation was not the solution. Uh, they didn't think it was biblical, perhaps, but honestly, for many of the women kind of who were already, you know, housewives, they maybe had two, three, four kids already. They didn't have a college education. They didn't have a career. And then somebody like Betty Friedan comes along and says, you know, liberation, go do whatever you want to do. That that really wasn't practical. Um, and so somebody like Maribel Morgan comes along and says, yes, you're miserable. Here's the key to happiness. You have to utterly submit yourself to your husband and you need to prop up his ego and make him happy so that he doesn't treat you poorly. Um, and you make him happy by, um, uh, you know, keeping yourself beautiful, meeting his every sexual need. So he doesn't take up with his secretary and, uh, really fulfilling him. And then he's going to be so much happier that he's going to treat you well also. Um, so it's just kind of a pragmatic solution. And, you know, she offered some very, um, um, 
specific and graphic advice for how, how to please your man. And again, Christian publishing. And, um, wow. and, and so that was you know, a lot of women kind of, it, it, it made more sense given where they were at. And then there was, of course, that these, this was also being promoted as this is God's will. And many uh. Christian women really wanted to do <clears throat> God's will. They wanted to be faithful wives, mothers, faithful Christians. Um, Gloria Steinem too. I, I just realized Gloria Steinem was coming up in that age of seventies, and that was a challenge to manhood as well. So, wow, I just really thinking about now that whole seventies thing that was going on. Um, and you know that's that's really interesting. God's will. That's always what gets me every time. Um, the uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and it, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I've seen the thing, I, I grew up in that era too, where the, some denominations were starting to question, okay, should we have women preachers? Yeah. Should women be preachers? I grew up in churches that were like, um, okay, well, women, men get the priesthood. They get this special invisible powers and, uh, women don't. And you're like, well, uh, why not? Like, I mean, that was the kind of kid I was. That was the reason I didn't buy any stuff. Because <laughs> I was always like, oh, why not? And they're like, shut up, Chris. You just have some faith. And I'm like, but I don't, I just want to know why. Like, how can women get the shaft? They don't, they just got to go make uh, quilts and crap. Uh, they can't, like, why can't they have the priesthood? I mean, it seems like a cool thing, you know? Um, and uh, I think I have some references to it that are the the word priesthood that are, but you know, I, I was, <laughs> I have some references to it that I think identify the male part of it. Um, but uh, we won't get into that, <laughs> but uh, I think you get my drift, but you know, I was, I was always like, why is the Pope always a man? You know, why is there deacons always, you know, a man? Like, why is it like, what, what's the big deal here, man? Like, why can't like maybe if women want the priesthood, let them, I don't care. You know, like when, when women, they did the whole thing with, uh, I don't know what different variations of the churches it was, but they're like, we're going to make women uh, priests. And like, everyone was like really upset about that. And I was like, so what, man, Hey, run with it, baby, you know, free, yeah. run free, do what you want, you know, free yourself. I don't know. But yeah, it was, it's really interesting to how this all ties together where it's this, these generational eras that, uh, you know, now we live in an era, like a lot of my friends and me uh, really had trouble with like the Me Too movement because I, fortunately I've always kind of had a pretty good standard of what women like and what women don't like. When, um, you know, I've never sent a, a picture of privates to anyone, including girlfriends. I just, I just never would because I know the internet very well. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, that's going to end up on the internet and, and, uh, go places. Um, but I never realized how ugly there were some men being until the stories came out. Like at first when they came out, we were, most of us were resistance to us, but then we started hearing the stories and we're like, Holy crap. There's some really, <laughs> there's some dudes that are way out of control. Um, and so, you know, we started having to deal with this, okay, where's our masculinity and where are we in the place? And I, I dealt with it very early on in the nineties when there was the rise of sexual harassment. And as a CEO, I had to, you know, talk to the state and go, okay, so where does this fall? And how do we, how do we apply this? Because I don't want to get sued for sexual harassment. I don't want any part of it. Um, and you know, they're like, you, you have, you have, two write-ups you do one is the warning the second one is you go because if you do a third one it looks like you're being uh, complicit and i'm like that's fine with me man and and i fired a lot of guys for over sexual harassment yeah. um and uh it was a it was a hard thing to do but it kind of taught me it made me go hey man you don't want to be on the other end of this stick so yeah. be cool um so uh, I'm not sure where my question is. I'm kind of wandering. So I'll, let oh, I'll, I'll pull a question out of there. So, I mean, because if you look at white evangelicalism or conservative evangelicalism, uh, you, uh, this is a real problem. This, uh, the existence, uh, you know, despite their, you know, quote unquote, family values, um, commitments that what we see is there are deep problems of sexual abuse in evangelical circles and mm -hmm. the me too and church Too movement has really brought that to the fore in the last couple of years. But like I said, I had first started kind of um, paying attention to this topic 15 years ago. And then I, I set it aside for a time, finish another book, do some other projects. Um, but I never um, stopped paying attention. And what I saw happen is one after another, after another of the men that I had been tracking who were proponents of this 
militant Christian masculinity became implicated either directly or indirectly in sexual abuse scandals. So the entire last chapter of my book is horrible. It is one sordid tale after another of all of these guys who had appeared earlier in the book uh, who are kind of caught up in, in really, really terrible situations. And, um, but when you look at the history of their teachings of masculinity and femininity, this makes perfect sense because uh, you know, they had taught that God filled men with testosterone and gave men this um, kind of virility and this, this um, sexual appetite. And it was up to women to either per, through their own modesty to protect male virtue because we could not leave that up to men um, because of the way God made them. And then, um, or if, as soon as you married, then it was up to the wife to meet all of her husband's sexual needs. And, and um, so what you have then is this uh, kind of rhetoric that comes up again and again when there are uh, instances of sexual misconduct or abuse. It is always the woman's fault because hmm. if the man, so even somebody like, like Ted Hatter, Haggard, Ted Haggard, who uh, it was pastor of New Life Church, president of the National Association for Evangelicals, like, you know, center of evangelical power in Colorado Springs. Uh, he ends up taking up with a male prostitute. Even then, his wife gets blamed because she clearly really? wasn't meeting his sexual needs. And she had let herself go, another male pastor had said, Mark Driscoll. Um, and so, Seriously. come on, ladies, uh, right? So th wow. this is the way this goes. Or even young girls get blamed for quote unquote seducing grown men because this is what their ideology has taught them. And, and so it really is toxic. And then this is, this is all caught up in these very hierarchical institutions, families, mm -hmm. subcultures. And, and so it really is a devastating story. And, and that's something that just in the last couple of years, um, I had been following these stories initially just on blogs, on victim and victim advocate blogs. Mm -hmm. And now um, you know, there, there are stories that are in the national news with the SBC, Paige Patterson, Independent Fundamental Baptist. You know, we could just throw in Jerry Falwell right now, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, was Taggart the guy who, uh, it was, it was, uh, he was, he was, uh, he was hanging out with a gay dude at a massage thing and doing meth, too, on top yes, of it? Yes, yes, that, too. And he was very anti-gay and very anti-gay marriage. Exactly. And, and being an atheist, this is something we always watch. It's like the old saying from, I think, Shakespeare, thou dost protest too much. Yeah. And the the more you the more you're bashing gays and gay marriage and and uh, and and as you say you're promoting male masculinity the more you know we're gonna find you one day in a corner with a, a prostitute male or female usually male and we're gonna find out that you know it's like it's like whatever but yeah Jerry Falwell just got busted on that which uh, we talked about pre show is kind of funny I mean the dude was watching the corner I mean I I know I, I've known a few people that this is their thing and and I'm not judging but uh, you know there there is a I, I would almost bet that he interacted with the with the whole. He did a menage a trois, basically. That's it. I don't know. That's my yeah, opinion. yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh... Day to day, I think more information is is yeah. coming out on this, and we are nowhere, I, I think, near having the full story. Uh, but what has always interested me isn't just the you know, the perpetrators, mm -hmm. as interesting or uh, horrifying as they may be. It's the cultures that have enabled them, the cultures that excuse this behavior. Like this is not the first time that there there was any kind of red flag around Jerry Falwell Jr.'s behavior, not at all. Um, but these systems of power that end up just you know defending the the this patriarchal authority no matter what, mm -hmm. and there is such a long history of that. And there is this idea that. You know, this is the person God has put in charge. And again, the dangers out there are so great. The threats to us are, are, are so urgent that we cannot kind of depose our leader. We have to, at all costs, prop him up. And then the real victims, well, the victims are, are those on the outside, um, but also many on the inside as well, especially women and children. And you make a good research point, too. He blamed his wife. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I mean, it turns out (laughs) a new story just came out yesterday, I think, wasn't it last night or this morning? I can't even keep straight with in Politico. And um, Becky Fowell did have her own agency. And this is something that we also need to get to the bottom of that she was perhaps a predator in this situation. Uh, Again, it's 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 a developing story. So um, it's really hard to to know what the takeaways are of the, the Falwell saga yet, because, yeah, we're not to the end of it yet. You know, I, I had a friend uh, who started a website called Swingular.com. I don't know why I'm plugging that. I don't get any money from it. But uh, he had a swinger site, and he used to tell me about it and, you know, the stories. And, and he was a swinger himself. And and I don't know why I had these friends, but I, I, I've been single all my life. So I've, I've dated a lot. Uh, I've, I've known a lot of people. Uh, and I've, I've just been... I've just been on this adventure all my life or different adventures throughout my life. And so uh, for some reason, I've been exposed to a lot of people. I'm, just, I'm very social, I guess. Um, but he would tell me the stories. And so this is how I kind of got to know about swinger life and what went on it. On, on it and, and my business partner had gotten exposed to it accidentally one time. And then I had a, I think I had someone work for a company that, that uh, they, they had cameras and everything. And I think that's been applied with the, uh, with the follow thing. But what's interesting to me, and there's nothing wrong with that lifestyle. It's just, if you're preaching yeah. that you're this, this Jesus Christ sort of figure and I don't drink and I'm moralistic, whatever, you know, I mean, Hey, if that's your thing, just own it, baby. Just, just be like, uh, yeah. But, um, the sexual, the sexual, uh, abuse thing is very interesting to me. Uh, when I grew up, uh, where I grew up in Utah, uh, in my teens, 50% of the girls that I dated in a very highly religious area, 50% of the girls that I dated had either been raped, molested, and incested. Incest is really big here. Um, and uh, I think even on Pornhub, one of the biggest searches is brother-sister sort of thing, to my understanding. And and at one point, we were like the number one porn consumer in Utah, which is a, a state that is highly religious and yeah. and moralistic, you know, and, and, and interesting enough, voted heavily for Trump, probably will vote again. Um, but I can attest to that. And one of the things that I've had, I've kind of had a unique experience being seeing all my life and dating all my life and always being on just adventures. So I either, either owning my own businesses, which we had a lot, uh, or just doing it, just doing stuff. I just never have settled down, but it means I've dated a lot. And so because of that, I've heard the stories from women. I've heard the stories of abuse, sexual abuse. I've seen the continuum of it. Uh, I've dated women in their forties that are still cutting because of the sexual abuse that they inherited when they were, um, uh, children. And so, kind of the arc of what I've seen, which is kind of this weird, unique experience, because all my friends are like married, um, is I've seen the beginnings of it. And then I've seen the, what, what has happened with it and, and the arc of damage and psychology throughout their lives. And, and so when I, if I hear a woman is, is cutting, especially at a, year, a young age, it really trips me out because I know what that's like. And I know the guys that she's going to pick in her life, not, not 100% of the time, but it's, it definitely shapes them. And, and it's a, it's, you know, murder is almost sometimes better than child molestation or sexual abuse because it's over with, but the sexual abuse and I've seen the way that it, it currents through life and the damage that it does and, you know, rape, et cetera, et cetera, the damage that it does from a psychological basis and the scars that it makes. And then the scars that are passed on to everyone involved, et cetera, et cetera, are extraordinary. Um, And in, in my dating too, uh, I saw the interactions with religious leaders because a lot of times when women become single in some of these religions, or at least the ones I was affiliated with um, or knew of in, in the state, um, the the bishops would become predators because they, they have like a yearly private meeting with the people and you, you're supposed to confess all your sins. Instead of like Catholics doing the weekly thing, mm-hmm. you do the once a year thing. And so there would be these conversations that were just really like creepy um, that they would have with these single women and the, you know, they're married guys. And, and I always give my married guys a hard time uh, about how, about how 
weird they can be sometimes. Not all married guys, but yeah, pretty much all of you. Um, so, uh, so I, I can attest to what you're saying, and I, I can tell you it it really is a valid thing, um, especially with religion. And to me, I have this I have this saying that if you repress something, you create dementia. It's like if you build a dam that blocks water, what does the water try and do? It tries to go around it. And so if you build this life where you're like, sex is evil, sex should only be for uh, reproduction, sex should, you know, no, what is the Catholic thing, you know, you shouldn't even do anything that, uh, you know, wastes sperm because every sperm is sacred. Uh, and and uh, so, yeah, a lot of that plays into it. I, I can totally support what your research is on that because I'm, I'm validating that. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's of course a long history of you know, emphasis on chastity and sexual purity within Christian traditions. Uh, and so I don't want to discount that. And this is not something that, you know, uh, conservative evangelicals invented in the 1960s or 1970s. Um, but then what we do see is the rise of the, um, what has come to be called purity culture, mm-hmm. where again, this is very, um, you know, uh, gendered. So it's women who bear the burden of sexual purity and, um, and it is this impossible ideal, right? This absolutely impossible ideal of first perfect, perfect purity pre-marriage and then, you know, a real sexual objectification uh, starting the wedding night on. And um, in, in recent years, more and more evangelical women and many men too are starting to speak out about exactly what you're talking about. This, the damage that this has done to their, their own relationships, to their own sexuality, to their, um, um, and to their faith. And many of these people ended up really leaving the faith in part because their faith had been so wrapped up in these, um, you know, sexual prescriptions mm-hmm. and it just was impossible for people to, to hold that all together. And so many just walked away from the faith itself. Um, that said within Christianity and within evangelicalism, there have been other models, there are other models, but this conservative, uh, emphasis on purity and patriarchy really did move to the center and exert enormous amount of power across the evangelical world. And in the, the Mormons had that as well. You couldn't have sex before marriage, but in my, in my research of dating all my life, I've only met one woman who uh, has, has, has pretty, pretty much convinced me she was a virgin when she got married. It's kind of interesting. They do different games where um, there's like, the partial penetration there's there's even uh backside sort of stuff that well that's not v- vaginal so you know that's fine there it, it's it, it it's interesting people rush to marriage in those situations but i saw a lot of that um to me uh in the study of like women and women's role in religion or women's perceived role as, as men have dominated and pushed them it all comes down to control in every sort of tribal thing because to me, I just see religion as another tribal thing. Now, I'm not, I hope I'm not being offensive, but to me, I just see it as in a tribe as anything else. Uh, and, and, and tribes are always about control. They're always about, uh, there's a leader, there's, 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 you know, there's rules and the rules are about control. Everything is about, uh, is about control. You know, it's the Machiavellian sort of prince concept, if you read the prince. And so, and so to me, that, that always has to play. So there always has to be somebody who's the dominant and somebody who's the submissive, and, and that's the role it has to play. And so to me, I see a lot of that in religion when I see, you know, the people saying, well, women did this, women did that, and, you know, it's women's fault. And you see, you see the Bible, the, the, the persecution of women or the discussion of women um, and, and, how they're, and how they're thought of or treated. You know, I've even seen, uh, God, who's that? Denver guy who he, he he's really big on having the wife serve the husband. Do you know the guy I'm talking about? Oh, there are so many. So I'm There's trying so to many, think yeah. of who, which I, one this might There's be. one guy who really sticks out. He's been like banned. Like he can't go to other countries now, but he does these things and you're just like, maybe you should see a psychologist with you and your wife and work that out. Cause it clearly you're over, you know, thou dost promote test too much. So um, as we wrap this, um, a lot of this gets translated into Trump as this, yeah. as this uh, kind of like Braveheart 
viceroy. I don't know if that's the right word, but this, this kind of, they embrace him even. And that's when, what the really hard thing is for me to do. I'm like, this guy isn't very Jesus. Like, I thought you guys were about Jesus. I read the Bible, man. And this, this isn't Jesus. And, but you, you talk about how, how a lot of this stuff transferred into him. And, and even though he's not, you know, this guy's, this guy doesn't believe in God. You know, you can't quote a Bible verse if you have a gun to his head. Um, but 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 they go after Trump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, initially a lot of people were saying, "Oh, you know, how could evangelicals have betrayed their values?" Uh, or this is purely transactional. And I really push back against both of those interpretations. Hmm. That uh, if you're looking at uh, if you look at gender and if you look at authority, and, and like you said, you know, there's so much about control and so much about um, uh, evangelical. Uh, conservative evangelicalism over the past more than half a century has been about proper authority and control and submission. And again, it's white patriarchal authority at the heart of this, and it's a militant masculinity that is required. If you understand that, then it's not a huge leap to get to somebody like Donald Trump, especially after the trauma that many conservative evangelicals felt they were experiencing during the Obama administration. And and you can just see this direct connection of feeling that they're under siege, feeling that they're becoming further marginalized, not just demographically, but also in terms of LGBT rights, their own um, perceptions of religious freedom. And so you hear this rhetoric of, uh, you know, we need uh, warrior masculinity. We need a strong man. We need an ultimate fighting champion. Uh, you know, Robert Jeffress, one of Trump's leading evangelical supporters says, you know, we need the toughest son of a, you know what, and, and that's who, 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 who Trump is. And that's why we love him. And so they're very clear about this. And as soon as you appreciate that, this isn't a betrayal of, of their, their values. This is actually quite consistent with um, many of their deepest values. Um, now that said, right, this is not the only form of evangelicalism. This is not the only form of Christianity. I'm a practicing Christian myself, and the faith that I have embraced is in many ways the opposite of this, right? It's one of liberation. It's one of loving neighbors. It's one of, it's, it's a very different um, uh, uh, understanding of spirituality and of, of being in the world. And, and I think that's a tension you see right now within Christian communities where sometimes this cuts right through families, through churches, where, where there are two fundamentally different faiths operating even though maybe for a long time they've been using some of the same words, singing some, some of the same songs. Uh, there are these fundamental differences. That's really interesting. You just blew my mind there because now it starts to make sense. I mean, this is a quandary that I've been dealing with for five years. Um, you know, with, with Donald Trump, I knew people like Donald Trump that were malignant narcissists and, and liars. I had a good friend who was, and, you know, I tried to, I tried to kind of, uh, be his friend and loving as I could to him. Or I'm like, you're just a special person. I realize that you're lying all the time. Uh, I idolized Donald Trump in the eighties and then quickly in the 80 and 89s. I think when he wrote a book surviving, you started to realize this guy was a bankrupting idiot who just inherited his father's money. At least I did. Anybody studied him really, uh, well, <clears throat> and most New Yorkers knew that. Who's the rest of the country had never been exposed to this snake oil salesman, but wow, you really blew my mind there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what scares me too about about that relationship that they have with Trump is they seem to be willing to give up the Constitution, the democracy of what this country was founded upon, for that shining city on the hill, that God thing, and they're willing to make him a deity or a uh, <clears throat> a fascist leader, an authoritarian leader, they're willing to give the Constitution in what they perceive as the name of God for Trump, and they don't realize where this leads. I mean, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, this is this is this is a old freaking road, um, and that, that scares me. It is, you know, I. I, I became more and more frightened the further into this research that I got uh, because of the authoritarian tendencies. They are, they are very clear. And I will say that the first time I published any of this research was back in 2017, Time to Trump's inauguration. And one of the first people who reached out to me back then was a historian of 20th century Germany. And, uh, and he shared with me some of his documents on uh, the German church and German ideals of Christian masculinity in the 1930s 
and um, they they are indistinguishable from the documents that I was working with. And so the similarities are certainly there. It was harder to say that in public and be taken seriously in 2017. I think it's now easier um, to say that and and not be shouted down. And and you're you're so right. I had friends that uh, come over here that that uh, grew up in Germany. In Germany, they force you to learn about the the rise of of the Reich, Third Reich and and uh, Nazism. In fact, they have cobblestones. I forget what they're called. Yeah. The the cobblestone. There, there's a name for them, but they have mm-hmm. stones throughout their cities of yes. of the names of the Jews at that place that was at that home or that business that were taken. And everything is enshrined into uh, uh, German uh, education and culture to remind them of don't do this crap again. Yes. Um, and my German friends are like, this is everything we've sought and studied, the rise yeah. of, of Nazism. And <clears throat> people don't realize how much you'll seize power. Uh, and then, and then once uh, he wins the second term, like he's not going to, he's not going to play to his base anymore because he's a lame duck president. He doesn't give a crap about anything. And uh, I think there's the, uh, recent, uh, uh, advisor to him that's speaking out right now, uh, who's saying he's going to go full shrunk and awe. Like he's not, he, he doesn't have to get reelected. He doesn't have to embolden anything. He's going to go full out whatever and i think he's going to go full putin um or or, uh, the chinese president who now has a lifetime appointment so this is really scary um but yeah it's it it was you've you've explained why i've had a hard time with like christians were supposed to be about this jesus dude and like what the hell you know it's like you it's like you hired you hired uh i don't know satan to you sold your soul to Satan for these ideals, and and the original perception was they did it for um, the seats on the right. SCOTUS, right. right? But but it seems like this is more the attunement of that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's deeper. It's much wow. deeper than that. And you know, oh. so it's not just uh, this transactional thing of you give us this and we'll support you. It's it's really um, you know rooted in a, in a common identity. And again, you know, like the John Wayne figure, somebody like Donald Trump is the ideal leader for them. He was better than Ted Cruz, way better yeah. than Mark Rubio, way better than Ben Carson, because he wasn't constrained by these traditional Christian virtues. He was not at all constrained by political correctness. He didn't care what you thought he was going to do whatever needed to be done and that's exactly what they needed that, wow you're just blowing my mind with this data that makes so much sense that i mean he blew through i think it was like 12 different gop contestants yes yeah all had experience those and yeah. everyone just kind of went i mean even hillary clinton didn't see that that thing coming uh they're like there's no way you know even i was like yeah there's no way man um but you saw this undercurrent of of stuff and uh, what do you think is going to happen in November? What's your do you want to do you want to put anything on the record? <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, whatever I put on the record should be very quickly dismissed. Or I'm a historian; I just look at the past, and I'm yeah. terrible at looking forward. Um, so uh, I have no idea what will happen. Do you see I, your I, communities? I was, the yeah, I, w- I was go, feeling. Oh, I don't know. I was feeling cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. until this week and watching uh, the Republican convention. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was just how skillfully Republicans were able to take this ideology and wrap it up in the, with, in the veneer of moral virtue. And when I saw how, how um, just cleverly they accomplished that, how powerfully they accomplished that for their base, for their white conservative base, that's when I realized that that this is going to be close and and th- this is not at all a sure deal. Um, despite everything, despite coronavirus, despite the economy, all of that, there still is this identity at the core. And there are many, many Americans and many American Christians who believe that this is actually the virtuous, the moral, the righteous cause. Uh, we're going to lose the Constitution, man, if he wins again. Like, it's over. The, yeah. the whole democracy uh, experiment dies and this dies just like any other authoritarian rule we've seen um and i agree with you i i didn't really watch the rnc but i watched the shape of it and the tone of it and what about the lying like i how do christians reconcile the lying that support him yeah so um, and this gets this gets um back to the history the this idea that you know 
that this us versus them mentality mm. and that evangelicals, those inside the fold have access to God's truth. And so um, those outside the fold, those who aren't reading the Bible, aren't reading the Bible in the proper way, who aren't in this kind of hierarchy of authority um, from pastor to patriarchal father, you know, um, down to kids, those on the outside are not to be trusted. And why should we empower them? Because they don't have the source of truth. And if we want to bring righteousness to this society, <laughs> then we need to be in charge because clearly they don't have access to righteousness and truth. And so there are deep anti-democratic impulses, also a long, long history of mistrust of the media, of the mainstream media. This mm. goes back decades and decades. Yeah. And so you listen to your own sources, you listen to your own sources of truth, and you, you empower people who have access to that truth, and you actively disempower people who do not. And that's why, you know, democracy is, um, I actually don't hear a lot of conservative evangelicals talking about democracy all that much. I hear them mm. talking about authority, and I hear them talking about, you know, religious freedom, meaning very clearly their own freedom as holders of truth to be able to maintain that truth, hold that truth and enforce that truth. And that does not extend to those who are holding right different ideas of what is true or what is good. Um, now, not all evangelicals will fall into that category. Not all proponents of religious freedom will, but if, if you pay attention to, you know, which cases they're supporting and to their own rhetoric, this is absolutely a theme. Wow, man. And it just plays right into the Germany thing. So this has been really enlightening. I've learned a lot, and I'm scared now, really, for the election even more. I mean, I've been a little paranoid and anxious, but now even more so I am because I, I really see the psychology behind it and uh, how dangerous Donald Trump is. I mean, I, he, he'll sell out the evangelicals once he becomes reelected. He'll sell out everybody. I mean, he'll, he will just go for ultimate total power and the destruction of everything. I mean, this, just the stomping of what the RNC did of, you know, watching the uh, political event at the White House and the, the fireworks, the thing. So this has been really enlightening. Uh, anything more we should uh, plug about your book before we go? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's available everywhere and uh, it's, I think it's a pretty good read and yeah, it's, it's going to give you the backstory. It's going to make sense of a lot of things that are playing out right now and um, what's going to play out in November. Wow. And it's really important to understand these things. I mean, what everyone's dealing with, you know, the different uh, things of manhood, uh, you know, like I said, I, I've had to give up John Wayne recently um, and go, okay, you know, yeah, there he goes. He had another hero down the toilet and uh, that's fine. That's cool. Uh, I see the, I see this, you know, a lot of it was unconscious bias. So that was real important. Uh, guys, be sure to check it out. Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And wow, hopefully you don't fracture it more in November, man. I'm really liking that constitution right now. Um, well, give us your plugs one more time, Kristen, where people can check you out on the interwebs. Sure. I'm on Twitter at KK Dumez. That's K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. Author page, uh, Facebook, Kristen Kobus Dumez, and also KristenDumez.com. I put all my writings up there. Thanks for being on the show, Kristen. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, be sure to pick up the book. Go to Amazon or other different places you can take and get at your local bookstores. Uh, support them if you would. And also, uh, you can see the video version of this if you're listening to the audio podcast uh, on YouTube.com where it says Chris Voss. You go to the ecvpn.com, refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. If you can, go give a five-star review to the show on iTunes. We certainly appreciate that as well. Uh, thanks, Amanis, for tuning in. Hopefully, you'll uh, stay for more of the conversation. We'll keep having as we go on uh, with what's going on in the nation and all these great books and authors that are mapping out this history. And hopefully we'll learn from history. One of the biggest problems with, I always say, this is my quotation, is the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. So there lies the great uh, cyclical dichotomy of revolution, as it were. Uh, anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.